Hello, everyone. Welcome to this talk sponsored by Elenco, where we cover one of my favorite topics, and that's osteoarthritis, with someone who I absolutely love discussing this topic with, and that is Dr. David Dykus. Now, osteoarthritis is one of those topics that could be considered to be covered, you know, kind of far and wide. But for me, you know, I talk about arthritis a lot, and I tend to feel like every time we discuss arthritis, I learn something new, and I look at it a little differently, and I manage those cases a little differently going forward. For example, I often ask the question, something along the lines of, give me some background on osteoarthritis, thinking, wow, you know, I've asked that question before, but... It never fails. I always get a little different answer. I learn a little bit more, and this podcast was no exception. Dr. Dykus is just a phenomenal person for this discussion. We dive a lot into client communication and follow-up care and ways to go about those to make sure we're treating our patients in the most complete way possible. Dr. Dykus attended Mississippi State University's College of Veterinary Medicine for his veterinary degree, Auburn University for a small animal rotating internship, and Mississippi State for a combined surgical residency and master's degree. Dr. Dykus is frequently asked to lecture locally, nationally, and internationally. He's given over 200 continuing education lectures and taught over 125 laboratories. He's published numerous research articles and authored or co-authored several book chapters. He's co-editor of the textbook, Complications in Canine Cranial Cruciate Ligament Surgery. In 2023, Dr. Dykus received the Veterinary Heroes Award in Surgery by DVM360 and was named by DVM360.com as one of the 10 veterinarians to watch in 2018. Dr. Dykus is a frequent contributor for updates in orthopedics to several veterinary websites and magazines. He's also been featured on SiriusXM's Dr. Radio's segment on pet health and orthopedics. His passion for teaching has allowed him to become a laboratory instructor for the CBLO, TPLO, extracapsular stabilization, medial patella luxation, angular limb deformity, and fracture repair. He's on faculty for AO, and he's an orthopedic consultant for VIN, the Veterinary Information Network. Along with being a scientific reviewer for multiple journals, he serves on the editorial review board and is the associate editor in orthopedics for veterinary surgery, the official publication of the American and European Colleges of Veterinary Surgeons. He's previously held an appointment on the research committee for the American College of Veterinary Surgeons. Currently, Dr. Dykus is on the board of trustees for the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, is a council member for the Association for Veterinary Orthopedic Research and Education, and is on the education committee for AO North America. Dr. Dykus became a certified canine rehabilitation practitioner through the University of Tennessee in 2015. He's the director and chief of orthopedic surgery at Nexus Veterinary Bone and Joint Center, where he has a focus on total joint replacement, complex and minimally invasive fracture repair, as well as angular limb deformity correction, 3D implanting, and arthroscopy. In addition, he's the medical director for Nexus Veterinary Specialists, located in Baltimore, Maryland. He's the founder of OrthoVet Consulting, an educational consulting and orthopedic coaching service, as well as the co-founder of the Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation Institute. Well, for this episode, I'm once again joined by Dr. David Dykus, who I love talking to about canine osteoarthritis. I feel like you're just a wealth of information. So 
always happy when we get to sit down and have these conversations because I learn so much each time. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for uh, having me back. Obviously, osteoarthritis is one of my passions. So I enjoy talking about it. Anytime anybody gives me the opportunity, I try to jump at it. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, you know, this is kind of a topic I feel like that we cover in a lot of osteoarthritis talks, and that's the pathophysiology behind OA. But I feel like it's so important. And I know every time I talk about the pathophysiology behind OA, I start to look at it a little bit differently. So can you kind of give us a brief overview of the pathophys that we're looking at here? Absolutely. So I, I think it's important to remember that osteoarthritis is the most common form of, of the arthropathies that, that we see. And it, and it really causes this sort of downward, nasty kind of progressive spiral. So anytime we have something that's abnormal to the joint, whether that's a developmental orthopedic disease or a dog or a cat suffers an articular fracture, or maybe they're overweight, or there is a torn cruciate ligament, anything that throws off the normalcy of the joint has the ability to develop arthritic changes. And so what happens is once there's that damage, there's going to be these inflammatory mediators that get released from the synovium of the joint. And ultimately what, what happens is that then takes away from the nutritional source to the articular cartilage because the synovium is very important for nutrient waste exchange. It's also very important for producing the nutritional factors to the articular cartilage. And so if there's damage to the cartilage, and ultimately, the, there's this inflammatory response, then the kind of get a double-edged sword in, in the fact that the articular cartilage isn't getting a nutritional source to try to produce the elements that they need. But then the inflammatory mediators that are being kicked out aren't being taken back through the, the joint capsule and taken from the joint. So you can get effusion in the joint. And then what can happen is ultimately we start to lose some range of motion in, in the joint. We start to develop periarticular fibrosis around the joint, which further compounds the loss of, of range of motion. And, you know, what's important to remember is that motion in the joint is what stimulates the synovium to produce hyaluronic acid and other nutritional components. But it's also movement of the joint is critical for function of the joint and for preventing loss of range of motion because loss of range of motion is directly correlated to limb function. And so if we if we have a loss of range of motion, then ultimately there's going to be limb impediment. So what's then happening is as the articular cartilage is becoming damaged, it's no longer functioning, which its job's pretty simple. It just lessens the compressive forces onto the subchondral bone. So the subchondral bone becomes more dense, it becomes more brittle, it becomes more painful. And then we also get some changes to the, the joint capsule as well. And so we can see some thickening of the joint capsule. We see an increase in blood supply to the joint capsule. We also see an increase in, in nerve endings into the joint capsule. So that capsular distension probably creates some discomfort, but also is involved with this whole central preservation of the perception of pain. And then uh, ultimately, the articular chondrocytes, it's important to remember that there's there's no blood supply. So all of the nutritional sources coming from diffusion in the, in the joint fluid, but there's also no nervous tissue to the articular cartilage. So when we talk about the pathophysiology, we talk about pain response, none of that's coming from the articular cartilage because there is no nervous tissue to the articular cartilage. It's, it's all coming from these other tissues. And so, you know, when we think about osteoarthritis in general, we, we have to really think about the joint 
as an organ. The typical thing that I that I kind of relate to is, is if you think about the stomach, for example, there's there's all these different cell populations in the stomach, and they all collectively work together for the stomach to function as an organ, and the joints the same way. So when we think about the physiology or the pathophysiology of osteoarthritis, we really start to beat up on the articular cartilage. But what we tend to forget are there's all these other structures that are involved and there's crosstalk amongst all these other structures that that are involved. And so it therefore affects the entire joint and it even affects the tissues outside of the joint. And, you know, in the dog, it's really important to remember that osteoarthritis is not an old dog disease. It's it's an any age dog disease. And, and realistically, it's secondary in nature. So it's usually coming from something else. And it's usually a developmental orthopedic disease. Now, the cat's a little different. The, the cat tends to have more primary OA and it tends to be more idiopathic in nature. So it's a little bit of a different disease process between the dog and the cat. And and that's why we need to really recognize osteoarthritis, not only in, in dogs and cats, but in particular, start this process very early, realizing that, it, it, that globally within the joint, a number of structures are being affected with this. And it kind of spirals downhill that the issue is not only at the joint, but also how the brain is perceiving that that pain over time. Yep, there it is. Definitely looking at it a little different than I did before this conversation. I, that's why I love talking about this pathophys. Like it just kind of is, it's very eye-opening every time we have the conversation about osteoarthritis pathophysiology because it's so complex and there's so many mediators involved. One of the things I think I heard you saying is, it sounds like we can really end up with with sort of a vicious cycle because you talked about having a healthy synovium and needing joint motion for that. But of course, we have all of these reasons why these pets are in pain, so they don't want to move and we probably don't get very good joint motion and around and around and around we go, worsening the osteoarthritis that we're dealing with. That I'm sure is a very simplified version of a fraction of what you said, but that was kind of a big takeaway for me of how important it is to treat these guys and keep them moving so we can keep these joints healthy. Yep. You just, you hit the nail on the head entirely. The whole thing is trying to see if we can calm the inflammatory response in the joint to make the joint less painful to encourage movement and motion because the the most detrimental thing we can do to a joint is isolate it and and not put it through motion. But if an animal's painful, it's not really fair of us to ask them to force motion or if an owner perceives their pet as being painful, they're going to be less likely to allow them to be active. So it really boils down for us to create activity, we have to resolve the pain aspect or at least minimize the pain aspect. And so, you know, there's definitely different approaches to the treatment for me that I'm sure as we sort of evolve through our discussion, we'll probably get to. But realistically, how I manage it really dictates on how painful they are, knowing that the ultimate end goal of anything orthopedic-wise, maintain range of motion and early limb function. Also, is it idiopathic in cats or is it because they're jumping on and off of everything for their whole lives? <laughs> you know, it, it very well could be. Osteoarthritis, in a, especially in people, is, is so challenging because there's different types. There's genetic-based osteoarthritis. There's certain risk factors. There's post-traumatic osteoarthritis. There's a whole number of things. And so in cats, 
you know, we don't really see, I mean, we can see hip dysplasia in the cat, but we don't really see as many developmental orthopedic issues in the cat as, as we do in the dog. And, and cats very well could develop arthritic changes as they get older and as the joints are worn down because of a lot of the concussive forces on them, which is why we see such a high percentage of older cats affected with, with osteoarthritis versus we don't usually see very young cats with, with osteoarthritis. But man, think about how many two, three, four-year-old dogs you see who, that their elbows or their hips look absolutely horrible radiographically. And, and it's all because of, you know, the different dysplasias that weren't recognized or addressed earlier on. Absolutely. I have a patient now that we're working on figuring out what the long-term plan is going to be correctively for him. Cause I, I feel like I started limping when I saw his radiograph because <laughs> those hips were just like floating in space. And I'm like, how are he was 90 pounds? I'm going, how are you even doing this? So he's going to need some pretty significant intervention, but yeah, he's a very young dog and he's definitely symptomatic for it. So being on the lookout, like you mentioned in our young dogs, since we do see a lot more developmental orthopedic disease than we do in cats, can you touch on the importance of recognizing OA early and more importantly, kind of how to be on the lookout for OA early in our patients, because sometimes it can be hard to get owners to buy into a disease process like arthritis or osteoarthritis in these young patients. Absolutely. And, you know, a quote from a, a very good mentor and friend of mine, Dr. Dennis Marcelin Little, you know, he he says, listen, our current approach to OA management is very much retroactive. We, we sort of wait on there to be an issue, and then they come to us. We then go through the process of diagnosing the issue, and then we try to, to manage or treat the issue. But by that point, we're way behind the eight ball. And, and so then it really says, well, can we move from this retroactive approach to OA management to a more proactive approach to OA management, meaning early recognition? Is there a way that we can maybe pick up on OA risk factors or pick up on some of these dogs that have the potential to develop arthritic changes before there's radiographic signs and start a management strategy with them. And, and one way we can do that is to introduce what's called the COAST approach. And, and the COAST approach, so that stands for Canine Osteoarthritis Staging Tool. And this was developed and published in 2018. It's an open access article that you can absolutely just Google canine coast approach. But this is a very nice way to recognize patients with OA risk factors that are very young, but also to patients that have OA, we can grade them. And then as we institute a management strategy, we can see, are we being successful in, in that range? And so it's, it's very simple. It allows the owner to participate and that they're filling out a clinical metrology index or C CMI, which these are these are things like a canine brief pain inventory index or a Liverpool OA score. These are things you can pull offline. They're all open access. The nice thing is, is that the owner's filling this out before you come into the exam room. So it keeps them from going through your drawers in your exam room. They're, you know, they're they're occupied, but it allows them to be involved. Um, and then as the veterinarian, you're going to go through a series of things to grade the joint and grade the dog. It's designed to be very simple to cumulatively give you a score of zero to four. And zero is normal, no OA risk factors. In theory, if this was a young dog and this dog never tears an ACL, never has an articular fracture and doesn't get overweight, should not really develop arthritic changes. But then the more important one is the coast grade one. And, and this is going to be a dog that appears clinically normal but has some OA risk factors that are picked up. And, and this would be a prime example of like the six-month-old puppy with developmental elbow disease or so-called elbow dysplasia, where, you know, owners just got this 
happy, bouncy little puppy. And, you know, nobody wants to deliver bad news about this is what, you know, the future is going to hold. So we tend to, to blow it off. But I think if we've got young dogs that are breeds of predisposed to certain um, developmental orthopedic issues, you know, utilizing a, a coast approach for early recognition is very helpful. But then I'm also a huge fan of getting as much objective information as you can, because one of the things that we really have to ask ourselves or, or be honest with ourselves is if we start a, a management or a treatment, how do we know that they're really getting better? Like, like, how do we truly know that we're making a difference? And so using the coast approach and a coast grade, not just for young dogs for the proactive approach, but also for grading to see what stage they're at, but then also introducing other both objective and then semi-objective measures. So for example, many of us like to use a mild, moderate, or severe lameness scale. I would encourage individuals to move away from that and use a numerical scale, whether that's a zero to five or a zero to six or a zero to 10. But you also have to watch the dog walk. And I would also add trot in more than just an area of the exam room. So using a hallway or somewhere with good footing and traction, watching them walk and trot because in some animals with a low grade lameness, it's not going to be as easy to see at the walk, but it's easier to see at the trot. And so that way, if, if you're out of the office and a colleague comes in and sees one of your cases, they can look in the record and say, okay, this dog was grade three out of five lame on the right front leg four weeks ago when we introduced this treatment and now the dog's grade two out of five lame. So great. We're making some headway versus the mild, the moderate or severe that doesn't give us as much information. And then the other thing that I think could be very helpful is measuring limb girth, basically using a tailor's tape and measuring the front limb girth and the hind limb girth. And, you know, sometimes we can say, well, obviously, if we look, there's atrophy present, and we assume that atrophy means lack of usage and therefore loss of muscle. And so if we put on muscle, then we expect the limb girth to get bigger. And so we can measure these and uh, and see if there's a discrepancy. And if there's a discrepancy, then we can put that in the medical notes. And from there, we can follow up and recheck and, and see, are we making a headway? And those two things, so using the coast approach, but also using numerical grading scale and measuring limb girth, those are very simple. They take minimal time at all and minimal effort. The other thing that can be added in is actually quantifying range of motion, meaning we measure the joint angles through the use of goniometry. And, you know, this takes this takes some learning. I mean, it takes all of like 10 or 15 minutes to learn. But once you have it down, you, you basically, if you're manipulating a limb and it feels like there's a loss of range of motion or some discomfort, you can measure it and compare it to the other side. And now you've got some concrete numbers because I think numbers are important because I'm going to use, for example, the hip. Normal hip extension is about 160 degrees. Um, so if a dog has 150 degrees of hip extension, by definition, that's reduced, but it's probably not clinically significant. But if a dog has 140 degrees, that's more clinically significant because it's outside of sort of that 10 degree normalcy. And so I can do things for a dog that has say 140 degrees of hip extension to get them over 150 degrees of hip extension. And that dog's probably going to be doing better. And so, you know, utilizing some of these things to really help with really objectifying what you're seeing and, and able to just put a little bit more information on there. So that way when they follow up, you know if you're truly making a, a, a headway in terms of the right direction, or do we need to change our, our management strategy and move to it in a different direction, or are we way off base and there's something else actually going on because there's been no change at all?
That makes a lot of sense. I've definitely used mild, moderate to severe. And you're right. Like, you know, especially if you are not the first person seeing this pet, that dog might come in and you're like, yep, they're still lame. Like, I don't know what mild was for you. It's, you know, mild for me. Sure. And it really doesn't give you a lot of information and you kind of have to go off of what the owner is seeing at home. And, you know, of course you wonder about placebo effect. And so that makes a lot of sense to take some really quantitative measurements to say, are we improving? Are we not improving? It's probably getting a little bit too far into the weeds to talk about like, where do you measure limb girth and stuff like that and and how you document that going forward. Um, And you mentioned the goiniometry to measure joint angles. Do you have a resource that veterinarians, veterinary technicians can look at to help familiarize ourselves with some of this? Yeah, as as far as goniometry goes and and measuring limb girth, a lot of those things are defined in, they've been published but also too, there's a um, textbook the on physical therapy and or canine physical therapy and rehabilitation. So Daryl Millis and David Levine um, wrote that textbook or, or edited that textbook. That that has the measurements for goniometry in there. It also has how to measure hind limb girth. You know, for me for hind limb girth, I usually have them standing. I take the Taylor's tape, I go around the the limb, and then I kind of cross right over the greater trochanter. And for me, you know, there may be difference between what I measure and you measure. Um, it tends to work out pretty quickly because realistically, the defined way is the dog needs to be in lateral recumbency. You measure the length of the femur, you go down 70% and you go around the limb there. So it's a little bit more involved. But for the front limb, I usually just kind of go right up in the axillary region and right across the greater tubercle of the, the humerus. And knowing that your measurements, my measurements may be slightly off, but if the discrepancy is still the same. I don't care so much if I measure, say, a, a 40 and a 42 and you measure a 38 and a 40, you know, the discrepancy is still two. So that's typically how I, I tend to do it. Absolutely. Thank you for that. One of the other topics I want to make sure that we talk about here is radiographic versus clinical OA. You know, you have those dogs in the exam room where you flex their stifles and it's just like crunch, 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 crunch. And the owner is like, they run like the wind. And so there can definitely be some discrepancy, certainly between physical exam findings and clinical signs. What about radiographically and clinical signs? Yeah. So this is actually very important and and one that kind of gets lost in translation. So ultimately, we've always said that radiographic signs don't correlate to clinical signs. So for example, the dog that comes into you for acute vomiting, you take abdominal radiographs, you catch the hips, the hips look horrible. Now what do you do? Do you send it to the surgeon for a hip replacement or do you ignore it because the dog's there for GI stuff or do you do something else? And, you know, I, I sometimes call that the incidental OA, but that that's uh, basically a, a type of radiographic OA. And so the old statistic would say that, well, 20% of adult dogs have radiographic evidence of OA. And we would all say, well, I think that number is probably higher because I would say that I see OA very frequently. Um And that was old data and it was in older dogs. And so NC State actually has done a study where they put together an abstract that hopefully will go on to be published. And they looked at what is the prevalence of of radiographic OA and associated clinical signs in young dogs. And so they took, you know, a little over 120 dogs from the age of eight months to four years. So I think we would all consider those to be young dogs. Um, what they found is with those young dogs, almost 40% of those had radiographic evidence of OA. So right there, the statistic of 20% of adult dogs now is out the window. That's old data. We know it's higher. But of those 123-ish dogs, about 
24, close to 24% had um, clinical OA. What the difference is, is radiographic OA is you see OA on radiographs, but there's no clinical signs. There's no pain. And that's the big thing. There's no joint pain associated with it. Clinical OA uh, has both radiographic OA and joint pain. And so then they, they sort of looked and said, okay, we know that now about 40% of young dogs have radiographic OA and about 24-ish percent have clinical OA. And so then they, they looked at, okay, the dogs with clinical OA, the owners that were reporting an issue, some sort of impairment, it was about 50% of the owners thought that there was, there was an issue with their, with their dogs that they were noticing. But interestingly enough, at the time, only uh, under 14% of those dogs were actually being treated, which is like kind of baffling that, you know, you've got this large percentage of owners saying, I'm seeing an issue at home but very few of them were actually being treated. And then, you know, what I find from this study as well is that I've always said, well, radiographic signs don't correlate with clinical signs. So we just sort of moved on from it. But they went back and they said, okay, of those 40% of dogs that had radiographic OA, what percentage of those had clinical OA associated with it? And it was about 60%. So what that tells me is that while radiographic signs may not correlate with clinical signs, if I see radiographic signs, I'm making very sure that there's not joint pain. You know, I don't want to blow it off. But I also probably am not going to take the dog with radiographic hip OA that has very comfortable hips and normal hip extension and send them to the surgeon for, for hip replacement. So I, I think it's very important to recognize the difference. And I, I'm willing to bet that if we were to classify these as two different things, dogs with a coast grade one um, might fall into either no radiographic OA or radiographic OA. And then dogs with coast grade two, three, or four, the grade twos might fall into radiographic OA, and the threes and fours probably fall into the, the clinical OA. And, and so it's interesting to see how that, that coast approach, which they were never defined to really be imposed to with each other, but you know, taking a step back and just sort of looking at the broader picture, we could probably put dogs' coast grades into radiographic versus clinical OA, which also starts my process of how in the heck I even manage OA. Yes, let's definitely jump into that. You know, say you do have a dog with radiographic OA and you're not detecting significant joint pain. They have good range of motion, you know, good good muscle score, everything like that. What are you recommending to those those owners, those patients? So, when it when it comes to this this aspect of management, I really try to break it into two categories because it, there's sort of this sort of ebb and flow process where we can have these periods of calmness or remission. And these are patients that either we know they have OA, but they're not clinically affected. So radiographic OA, or maybe a coast grade one, or they have an issue that could develop OA. So the dog that has a coast grade one, the puppy, or the dog with an ACL tear, or the dog with an articular fracture. Those patients, if they're comfortable, then we're going to really focus on keeping them at a lean body weight. So that sometimes means both dietary management, but also daily exercise. But we really want to define daily exercise. Daily exercise isn't running around in the backyard. And, and so when I tell owners, yeah, we got to talk about an exercise program, they get really happy because they envision opening the door and the dog running up and down the fence line and they don't have to do a lot. And then I say, well, daily exercise is taking your dog for a walk. And then they get really sad again because now it involves work <laughs> on, on their part. 
And and so ideally what I want is a, most dogs to be able to go on at least twice daily, 20 minute walks. And, and, you know, I don't feel like I'm asking a lot. I'm asking for 40 minutes out of a 24 hour day for uh, somebody to spend with their dog. And, and I want them walking. And, and then once they hit 20 minutes on relatively level flat ground, then the sky is the limit as far as how long they want to walk, whether they want to do inclines, declines, uneven terrain, swimming, whatever they want to do. But we also need to make some lifestyle changes, meaning it's probably not best for us to sit on the back porch and throw the ball and the dog to jump off and take off and get it and throw on the brakes. Because, you know, the recipe to create joint injury and soft tissue orthopedic injuries is speed up, slow down, and twist and turn. And the majority of dogs love to speed up, slow down, and twist and turn. So we have to to make some lifestyle changes in the house. If there's a lot of hardwood or tile or linoleum, maybe we use some rugs. Maybe we limit stairs. We can still do some of the fun activities, but maybe we need to limit the intensity or the frequency or the duration of of some of those activities. Omega-3 fatty acids or fish oil supplements are are good. We've got great evidence there in terms of modulating the inflammatory response. So I usually go at a relatively high dose of omega-3 fatty acids. I'm a huge fan of Adequan. The minute I diagnose joint pathology or the potential for there to be joint pathology, I do it twice a week for four weeks. And then our joint supplements can be helpful in lieu of of what we're thinking about they're going to work for. You know, in terms of, for me, glucosamine, chondroitin sulfate, it's helpful, it's nice. The research is sort of kind of wish-washy there. But what I really like are some additional ingredients that some of the joint supplements carry that, that have some research on, again, modulating the inflammatory response. And so my biggest takeaway in that category is really going to be weight loss. And it's really going to be daily exercise sprinkled in with adequate fish oils and then uh, potentially joint supplements as a vehicle for some of these other ingredients. And then when it comes to, to weight loss, I usually try to make it achievable. If we have an overweight dog, we need to make it such that the owners perceive that it's going to be worthwhile and achievable. So if we have a 100-pound dog that should weigh 70 pounds, there's no way I'm going to tell an owner the dog should lose 30 pounds because that just doesn't seem achievable. So I start with 10% of body weight, and we do that over the course of about 10 weeks. And the nice thing is, is that the owner gets on board and they see some small changes. And so then they're willing to keep going. And so we keep going at 10% intervals until we hit the body condition that we want, not so much the body weight. I chose 10% because in people with NeoA, that can improve your comfort level. But there was a study that was done in Europe that found that if dogs lost 6% of body weight, the owners perceived the dogs were doing better. If they lost 8% of body weight, force plate analysis showed the dogs were doing better. So even if we strive for 10%, but we don't quite get there, we're probably still going to make some headway in terms of comfort getting getting body weight off of them. But you know, this whole kind of baseline management for the patients that are in a period of remission or calmness really revolves around the dog being comfortable. There's no way we can take a dog that's uncomfortable or painful and then expect them to have daily exercise. So that's why it's very important defining where we are on the spectrum of the OA disease. You know, whether you want to use the COAST score, whether you want to say radiographic versus clinical OA, or you want to define it as a period of calmness followed by the next thing we'll talk about, which are the ones that are painful, the periods of exacerbation. We tend to call these flare-ups. And these are dogs that have clinical OA. They're going to have radiographic signs, but they're also going to have joint pain. And here's where we have to really change the dynamics of how we're going to manage these. And and for me, what that means is we're going to back off daily exercise and we're going to focus on getting pain under control. 
Typically, that is going to be through the usage of an anti-inflammatory. That's going to be my first go-to. And for me, when I use an NSAID, I don't use it for two weeks and stop. I'm typically going to go one to three months to get pain under control. And before we stop cold turkey, we might try to taper it down. I'm also going to think of other pain medications that could be used. You know, for me, I like amantadine. I think a lot of us use gabapentin. There's not really any clinical evidence that gabapentin is effective in controlling joint pain. Some people might use it for the central sensitization aspect of things. Pregabalin is one of those that's sort of kind of hitting the 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 waves now in terms of people using because it can be used twice a day, whereas gabapentin really needs to be used three times a day. Some are starting to experiment with sub-Q ketamine. I, I will do that if I've got patients that are sort of topped out on, on oral pain medications. But I, but I think what's, what's really happened is people have used NSAIDs and then they try to use them and get out of using them as quickly as possible. Whereas it needs to be, let's keep them on long enough to quieten the joint down because there's what's called the maladaptive process. And basically what's happening is as the disease progresses, the brain starts to perceive the level of pain is more intense to the same degree of a stimulus. So if a dog's in a flare-up and they come to you, they're, we'll say they're at their peak of pain. You put them on an inset, they start to feel better. So that peak starts to drop and then they'll hit a trough and then we take it away, assuming that they're doing better. But then they start the process right back up the hill again until they come back in. But the problem is the peak is likely higher than the last peak. And then when they bottom out, they're probably not bottoming out to that same baseline. So it's kind of stair-stepping up. And then at some point we hit a period where medications are no longer effective. And so, you know, one argument in, a, in addition to longer term use NSAIDs is, is there an argument to be had that at some point in the disease, we need to think about daily long term NSAID usage? You know, perhaps when we hit that coast three grade, maybe those are dogs that just kind of benefit trying to level the playing field or trying to manage that maladaptive process a little bit. And, you know, I know a lot of people, they're going to be like, oh my God, we're going to, we're going to kill every dog and fry every kidney by putting them on long-term NSAIDs. But the reality is, is that a review article from back in 2010 found that dogs on longer-term NSAIDs did better than dogs um, on shorter term when it came to OA and the adverse reporting was very minimal. So as long as they tolerate it and it's used appropriately, I don't think we're going to, you know, kill all these dogs with NSAIDs. And then also I try to think outside the box for, for some of these. So we said earlier that range of motion is critical, but if they're painful, they can't exercise and therefore they're immobile. So I think formal physical therapy or physical rehabilitation is like crucial during, during flare-ups because then they're able to allow active muscle engagement and movement without contributing to pain. So we can maintain that range of motion. I also do joint injections of, of various substances. And then of course, we've got some newer target specific products coming out of the market, the, the monoclonal antibodies of, of anti-nerve growth factor that, that can be considered, you know, Again, not as the standalone treatment, not as the, this is going to replace everything in the book for OA management, but for another tool in the tool belt to be utilized at certain points along the, the disease process. Because my goal is really to take a patient that's in a flare-up, do everything I can to get them out of a flare-up, to get them back to that period of remission or calmness, to get back to that baseline management, knowing that as the disease progresses, Flare-ups may become more frequent, they may last longer, and they're going to be more intense in, in how they feel. And therefore, we're going to have to always 
evolve our management strategies and, and take things away and add things. But I do think that insets probably are going to be the staple of, of, you know, management for these guys because tried and true in every study, they show improvement when patients are painful with joint pain. So many good points. That was, that was such good information. I feel like I was able to follow it all the way through to go, okay, that makes sense. And I think a lot of what you're saying mirrors what I have seen clinically. So my much more simplistic explanation to clients when, when I'm dealing with this comes from experience. And I, and I feel like I'm experiencing what you're describing here that, you know, I'll start the fish oil, the adequine, you know, we'll talk laser, physical therapy, acupuncture, these kind of different things and different pain medications. And when they're like, well, you know, geez, like we're doing all these things. I'll tell them it's, it's because I'll put you on the medications and the medications will work. But if we rely solely on the medications, then eventually we're going to get to a point where right now you're giving them and he's bouncing around like a puppy, but you're going to have to start giving them just to get him out of bed in the morning. And that's not what we want. That's, you know, we don't want him to have to have this just to move. We want it to be making him feel better. So using that multimodal therapy, and I'm wondering if it has to do with that maladaptive model and that sensitization of why these medications are, are be, I'm seeing them become less effective over time. It sounds like that kind of explains it. I am interested in the NSAID use. You said you usually start at one to three months and then kind of taper them, and you're not seeing a whole lot in the way of adverse effects for these guys. No, no. And, you know, I would, I would say, okay, let's, let's go at a month and let's see how we're doing. And perhaps if we're using something once a day, we maybe go to every other day and we do that for a couple of weeks and then we take it away and see how they do. I really gauge on my, am I going to do it one month or two months or three months on kind of how painful they are. And ultimately what are my other factors? What's my coast score? What's my radiographic degree of, of OA? What's the dog's range of motion? What can the dog do versus not do? You know, is it a dog that I go to manipulate the limb and it barely moves and the dog's like a walking tight rubber band because it's been in a flare up for years sometimes. You know, those are, it's like peeling back layers of an onion. You kind of got to peel back and peel back and peel back. And so I, I think what we need to also do as a profession is, counsel owners on how to recognize flare-ups because I think if if they can get the dogs to us quicker we could probably be better at getting the flare-up under control rather than waiting until they've been in a flare-up for many many months and then we have to get them out of it and so what I tell owners I've got some that I mean they have a photographic memory and they know you know, on Tuesday May the 7th my dog did this and on Wednesday July 14th my dog did this I have some owners that like to write things down. They keep a journal. And then I have some owners that get to work and sit down at their computer and they think, did I feed my dog this morning? Me. And, <laughs> and so, you know, they, they usually they usually have busy lives, small children. And I say, okay, let's make this fun. Go to the craft store, get three jars, get either popsicle sticks or marble, red, green, or yellow. Good day's green. An okay day or you forgot is yellow. Bad day's red. When yellow and red start to outnumber green, that could mean that we're either heading into a flare-up or we're in a flare-up. We probably should make an appointment. The other thing we don't want to do is bog down owners with information. Like I bogged you down with a ton of information and you're medically trained. So you can like take it and be like, okay, here's what I think you're saying. If you try to give all that information to an owner, which most of the time the husband's brought the dog in and has no idea really what's going on, they're going to be lost. And, and therefore everything you said, you're not going to get compliance. So 
if they come in in a flare up, I say, listen, we're going to get pain under control. And then we're not going to lose you to follow up. So we're going to get them back in two weeks later and see how we're doing. And we're going to get them back in two weeks later and see how we're doing. So we're going to keep getting them back in until we get the flare up under control. I will send owners to online resources. Um, there's what's called CAM, which is canine arthritis management. And that's based in the UK. And I think it might be caninearthritismanagement.uk, but don't, don't quote me on that. Yes, .co.uk. Perfect. The, the other is the Canine Arthritis Resources and Education, or CARE, and that's based in the U.S. And so for me, that has information written in client-friendly language as to exactly how we're going to manage it. And so rather than bogging them down in the exam room, I say, your dog's painful. We're going to work on that. Send them home and say, okay, between now and the next recheck, either in the evenings over a glass or a bottle of wine or whatever, you know, go ahead and start taking a look at this. So when they come back in, now you can have a more informed discussion because they've been able to kind of let it sink in and, and that for they are now on board. They understand what's going on. They understand why you're recommending what you're recommending when, why we may change up things, why we may do something versus not do something. And so it just helps keep them on board as far as what's going on rather than us trying to regurgitate it to them in a, you know, 15, 20 minute appointment slot, which is just, it's not realistic to try to get the information they need to them in a manner in that short period of time. I am glad that you brought that up and you kind of gave us your take on how you manage those because it can be so tempting to dive in and like, and then we can do this and then we can do this and you just watch them disengage and they're like, nope, we're not going to do any of that. And understandable. I have two small kids and I'm the person who gets to work and is like, did I feed the dog? I'm not sure. So I get it. So I'm really glad that you touched on these resources that we can send them to, to spend some time with away from the hospital and do these kind of short increments and quick follow-ups to make sure that, that, like you said, we're not losing these patients to follow up and just, you know, completely overwhelming the owners to the point where they don't want to do anything. Well, you've given us such a great overview of of pathophys and grading and you know treatment client communication everything like that like I said, this is why i love talking about arthritis i always learn no matter how many times we talk about arthritis can you give us an example of a clinical case that you have found and has been you know interesting or compelling recently absolutely i will give you a, a single example that we can kind of run through from young age through older age so let's say I have a seven-month-old puppy that has hip laxity. And, and hip laxity basically means the dog has hip dysplasia. And the, dog, the owners bring the dog in because they think the dog's bunny hopping, um, which is kind of a generic clinical sign. But on exam, we take radiographs and there's hip laxity. The, the femoral head doesn't fully engage the acetabulum. There isn't really any arthritic changes per se. And then on manipulation, the hip extension actually feels pretty good. And so for me, that's likely going to be a coast one. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to say, well, let's do a hip replacement. I'm not going to say, let's do an FHO just based on how it looks. And I'm not going to say, let's do nothing. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say, okay, we're going to do an adequate series, adequate twice a week for four weeks. I'm not an adequate once a month user. I, I don't think there's any clinical benefit to that. I know there are some that will fight me to the death that there is. The half-life is four days. So for me with Adequan, I use it the minute I diagnose joint pathology twice a week for four weeks, the minute they have a flare-up twice a week for four weeks and, and following joint surgery twice a week for four weeks. 
So I'm going to do an adequate series. We're going to start an omega-3 fatty acid or a green lip muscle. And I'll probably recommend a joint supplement with additional ingredients in it. But I'm going to talk to the owner and tell them, listen, your dog needs to maintain a lean body weight. Like I want your dog, I want your friends and family talking about you behind your back that your dog's too skinny because that's how you know he's at an appropriate weight. We're going to talk about um, daily exercise. So it's not a, a skeletally mature dog yet. So we're not going to push exercise, but we're going to say, you know, you need to teach your dog how to walk on the leash and you need to teach basic leash commands. And then I'm going to start having them do some home exercises to help maintain hip extension. And so for me, that's going to be like, okay, we need to do some sit to stand exercises. So now we need to teach your dog how to sit appropriately, a square sit. We're going to do some dancing exercises. So we need to teach your dog, you only jump up for dancing exercises when you're instructed to do so. You don't just jump up because you want to. And then I teach them how to do passive range of motion and stretching following their walks. And so I'll have them do their twice daily walks and stretching after with a real big focus on stretching the hips and extension. And then I'll have them do like two to three times a week home exercises. You know, as they get older and hit skeletal maturity, I'm going to want them doing twice daily, 20 minute leash walks. And then once they're comfortably doing that, I'm going to have them doing uneven terrain or walking over obstacles, kind of like little Cavalettis. I'm going to have them walking upstairs because walking upstairs increases hip extension. I'm going to have them continue those home exercises. I'm going to have them continue their stretching range of motion. At some point in the future, that dog is probably going to have a flare-up. And when it happens, the owner's going to have been counseled. They're going to know what happens. They're going to bring the dog in and we're going to evaluate it. And I'm going to say, okay, we're going to back off the daily exercise and I'm going to start an inset. We're going to keep on all the supplements that we're, we're on. We're going to do adequate twice a week for four weeks. And then depending on the degree I may put the dog into a, a formal rehab program for four weeks or so. And then depending on the, the pain level of the dog at the time, I'm either going to go for four weeks of my NSAID and then see if I can taper it down over the following four weeks, or I'm going to go for two weeks and see if I can taper it down over the following four weeks, or I'm sorry, four, two months. Um, and if that's successful and the dog gets out of a flare up, we go back to our baseline. And then if the dog comes back into a flare-up, um, we're probably going to go back to an inset. And if it wasn't as successful as I wanted, I might add in a mantidine for two weeks or 30 days. And so I sort of kind of continue that stair-stepping process. And at some point, the dog's going to be coming in more frequently for flare-ups. And we either have to decide daily inset usage, and that keeps the dog at bay, and life is great. Or we're topped out on oral medications and we think about sub-Q ketamine, or we think about joint injections, or we say, listen, the flare-ups are occurring so frequently, or we can't get it under control. Is there something we can do surgically? And then I'm going to say, well, maybe it's time we do a hip replacement. And if you look at, at sort of that entire flow over either the life of the dog or depending on how quickly OA progresses and how the dog perceives that pain, a shorter time frame, it follows exactly what they do in people, the exact approach that they do in people. And so they don't look at a hip radiograph when you're 10 years old and say, oh, your hips are crummy. You got hip dysplasia. Let's do an FHO. And you're like, but I'm walking around fine. There's no pain. You know, they, they wait until the very end point when all the appropriate conservative approaches have been exhausted and then say, now we're going to do a hip replacement. And so 
I follow sort of the same trend there because the challenge in the dog with all of these different dysplasias is we don't know what's the degree of severity of OA that they're going to have. We don't know at what time point that they're going to have it. And we don't know how that particular pet is going to perceive joint pain because you can have dogs that have identical radiographic findings, but very different stages of, of being in pain. And, and so, you know, we really have to take a very individualized approach. We can't take a cookie cutter approach by just opening up a textbook and it says do X, Y, and Z, which would make our life so much easier. But we really have to take a patient specific um, approach and, and know and tell owners that it's going to be ever evolving. New baselines are going to have to be created. We may start one management strategy and when it becomes less effective, switch it up over time. But we also need to not be scared of using anti-inflammatories longer term or even daily if, if needed, if it keeps the patient out of pain and keeps them comfortable. I think that's really good advice because the long-term NSAIDs or longer term NSAIDs, you know, even doing them, like you said, more than two weeks and stop, I think can be a little bit scary. So the recommendation to do that. And then, you know, as we get out there and we do it and we, you know, check these dogs, watch the blood work and see everything's okay. Hopefully we can do that a little bit more and, and get these guys relief and reduce that, that maladaptive pain, that central sensitization that we're seeing with arthritis. Cause I know that that was something that really hit home for me is yeah, I, I do. It's, it's not even that I'm, I'm concerned about the longer use of NSAIDs. It's just, I don't know how long is the right amount of time. So I think that's a really good reference point of look at all these different factors and then determine, you know, maybe in that one to three month range might be right for your patient. Yeah. And I think as, as we continue to understand OA and, and as our ability to understand pain perception improves and technology of development of drugs improves, we're going to find that, okay, for example, the, the monoclonal anti-nerve growth factor, it, it probably is going to be useful to say at this time point, you give it for this many injections, and that's going to help from the centralized pain perception standpoint. And then you follow up with NSAIDs or you use NSAIDs leading up to, or, you know, there, there's going to be a place for, for these things to help with the central sensitization or maladaptive pain response and, and hitting it from multiple fronts. What we don't want to happen is new technology of things come out and we stop using other things and say, well, we have this, we don't need anything else. And, and it's like, but OA is coming from so many different avenues that we really need to attack it from different avenues and they all have their place. You know, like when laser therapy came out, it wasn't like, well, now we're going to stop using NSAIDs and stop doing all these other things. We'll just laser every dog. Like, like it, it, it has its place, but it's not the only thing to be used. And, and so, you know, I encourage people to keep their, their ears and their eyes open to new products and to new things and figuring out where it mixes in to the whole gamut of OA management. Now, to a degree, I mean, if you follow too long, you get into like wacky town of, of crazy things, <laughs> but um, but at least the scientific basis of things. Because what you look at, when you look at what we're really trying to do, we're modulating management, managing inflammation and decreasing pain. That That is what we're trying to do. And so anything we can do to target that and provide pain relief to our patients is what we really need to be striving to do. I'm glad that you bring that up because that's definitely a thought that has gone through my mind. Like if we're focusing, say, just on pain medications, not anti-inflammatories, we're actually going after the inflammation, but just managing 
the pain, I'm going, you know, of course you want to treat the patient who's in front of you. But one of the things that I think about is I'm going, okay, well, if the pain's under control, the disease process is still progressing. So I feel like we still need to be addressing those joints, even if the pain medication alone is managing the clinical signs. Yeah, there, there's used to always be this sort of aspect of, well, you're just masking the pain. Well, the reality is, is we can't stop away. Like, well, like we cannot cure it, but we can address the after effect of pain to allow our patients to have a better quality of life and then be more active. And I think if they're able to be more active in return, you're going to have an improvement in quality of life, but you're also going to have an improvement in joint health. Now, if we really wanted to hone in and say, well, can we alter the course of the disease or can we slow down and minimize it? It's really going to go, if that's a possibility, you've got to recognize it at the very forefront, very beginning of the disease. If you recognize it after you've got radiographic OA and the dog's coming in a flare-up, all hands are off. You're, you're not going to make headway in doing really anything about the disease itself other than managing the effect of the disease. But if you, and, and so that's why if we could really as a profession make the paradigm shift to early recognition and do everything we can in our power to recognize as early as possible, there is the possibility that maybe we do slow down and minimize progression of, of OA. But until we get to that point, we really need to focus on managing the pain of OA. Absolutely. Well, this is one of my favorite processes to talk about is OA because I love managing it and I get really excited about all the different therapies and how to use them correctly and the different data that's coming available, but in consideration of, of your time and, and all of our listeners here, I will hold all of my other burning questions until the next time. Thank you so much for joining me. Such an informative discussion. Any final thoughts you want to share with us? I, I think we covered a ton of information. If everybody can digest it, take just a little bit. I think we'll uh, certainly make some headway in our, in our management strategies, but this has been great. Um, I'm happy to come back anytime, talk about other topics. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, somebody is able to take a little bit of what we've talked about and learn from. Absolutely. Thank you again. Thank you. Well, I know that I walked away with a new insight on grading arthritis and proper follow-up for these patients. Thank you so much, Dr. Dykus, for joining us. Thank you to Elenco for making this episode possible. And of course, thanks to all of you out there for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.